hello, hello. As you may know, Londonist is celebrating a decade delighting in all our city has to offer. So today's show is an opportunity to look back on the story so far. I'll be interviewing no fewer than three editors of the site. One who got the ball rolling, a second who grew Londonist and set it on a commercial footing, and the third, the new man in charge, who will be building on all of that and steering us into the next ten years. I'll be asking him what's in store. How does he regard the Londonist community? And where might you find him on his day off? It involves goats, you know. It's Friday the 10th of October 2014. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. Hey baby, let me take you down So we'll play some strange sights and sound You ain't never seen the light before Just a song through from your front I'm, I'm pretty good. I gather you've just arrived in uh, New York. Yes, ironically, uh, for London this podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm on holiday here. I got, well, I got here about three days ago, but still feeling the effects of the jet lag. But uh, what's the weather like over there? It is lovely today. It's beautiful autumnal, proper New York Woody Allen style day. Yeah, so that's good. Uh, winter has truly struck in uh, yeah. London. You'll be pleased. That really makes a holiday a holiday, doesn't it? It does. Yes. Good to know. That makes you feel very smug. <laughs> we're we're uh, talking about, in today's episode, we're talking about uh, Londonist from the perspective of it being the 10th anniversary thereof. And mm-hmm. um, now I, I must confess, I've I joined Londonist something like five years ago, and I don't think uh, we've ever met, and I don't think we've crossed over in any respect. So uh, th- this is a completely blank canvas for me. And uh, the first question I've got to ask is, Rob Hinkscliff, what was your involvement with Londonist and when was it? Um, how long do we, how long do we have? Um, <laughs> um, I, well, I founded Londonists, uh, well, I founded a blog called, what was originally called The Big Smoker. So, um, about 12 years ago, actually, myself and a friend called Ewan Mitchell had a bit of, I guess, you know, hosting going spare, really, and we decided to try and do something. And I was looking at sites like Gothamist, obviously, in New York, but also sites like Koodle.com in Chicago. Basically, these kind of city-based um, blogs and kind of editorial sites in the mm. U.S., and then looking at things like "This Is London" and what standard we're doing, and thinking that hang on, <laughs> there's a disparity here between <laughs> you know um, what these guys are doing in the states and what we're doing, and with kind of I guess youthful naivety, decided oh, we'll just create a website about London. Yes, and we started "This Is London." I mean, sorry, the Big Smoker which obviously we couldn't call ourselves Londonist, um, but it was very much modelled on, on that kind of Gothamist model. And mm. in about, I think it was three months, we won what was then called the Guardian Blog Awards. Um, there was, I mean, we won it, I think, because there was only about nine blogs around at the time. Um, so it wasn't much competition. Um, but we won the best designed blog, ironically, because uh, it was very kind of spare design. But mm. Ewan was the guy... He would do all the kind of animation and, and kind of design of it. So, and we won that and we went from 60 readers a day to 6,000 readers a day overnight and got, uh, suitably hammered by our kind of hosting our provider, uh, for going over, uh, the, the limit. Um, but, and it kind of took off and uh, after about a year, I think, um, a year and a half, something like that, 
Gothamist Jake Dockin, he runs Gothamist Caters and said, well, you're, you're pretty much Londonist in all but now. Do you want to come into the fold and be our kind of first overseas um, site? So that's when we kind of became part of that, that network. So that, which I think, I think took about a year and a half from when we started the, this is, um, the big smoker. So perhaps we can scoot, f- uh, forward and, and talk about that in, in just a moment because there's mm. the, the, uh, I'm quite interested in, in the structure of that and how the, a lot of people say, you know, it's London is part of something else and it would be quite interesting mm. to talk about the relationship with Gothamist and where they, uh, where they part ways and the things that cross over. But I, I was curious, you said you were looking at those overseas city blogs. What was it that you were seeing in those, uh, that was lighting your fire? Um, an editorial voice, really. There was, um, if you looked, you know, they're kind of representing their city. If you looked at, um, I mean, I've always kind of, most of the things that I've done, which I've enjoyed doing, are kind of a reaction against something being crap. Um, and it was more, and it was looking at, you know, looking at sites like This Is London, just thinking, this doesn't represent the city that I live in right now. I mean, I'm not a Londoner. I'm, I'm from the north, um, but I've lived in London for over 15 years now. And I just, you know, love the city as a lot of people, you know, fell in love with it when I moved here. And then you look at something and the kind of, I guess, you looked at blogs and kind of editorial websites in those days and you were looking at, you know, this kind of a new medium really and you were looking at stuff that was just wasn't, it was just, they were replicating old mediums and they were doing basically what the even standard did and does, uh, and online and it just, and then you looked at things like Gothamist and things like, um, the morning news. Which is based in Chicago as well, it's still going, Koodle.com, which is based in Chicago. And they were just looking at the city from a very kind of human, personal perspective. As a, as a user, as it were. Yeah, yeah, as a user of London, yeah. That's a good way of putting it, I guess. Um, and have it just, but having a bit of personality and a bit of voice, and a voice and maybe, you know, being a slightly, uh, opinionated, um, and not being too objective, um, and it was just, and it was quite refreshing. And so, and I think that's what we tried to do with the Big Smoke was to try and, um, you know, just write. We always wrote from a kind of editorial we perspective. It was like we at the Big Smoke, and it was always, it was always we at Londonist, us at Londonist. So we always kind of wrote from this kind of, you know, um, almost third person perspective. But it was a, it was a person. We had, a, we had a, quite a strong editorial voice right from the start. And I think that was, that was the thing we wanted to do and just try and kind of get under the skin of the city a little bit rather than just kind of gloss over it. Def- having defined that voice, I wondered how clear-headed you were about precisely who was likely to be listening to that voice, who, who you were speaking to. Uh, yeah, absolutely no idea. It was really it was really strange, actually, um, because I say we jumped from six, 60 people a day to 6,000 people a day and then, you know, it's just kept going from there. And we really had no idea. And the thing with... Um, I think this is still probably true as well. The thing with British audiences is they're far less proactive, or at least they were far less proactive in terms of commenting and, and, and talking back to you. If you looked at Gothamist in those days and other sites in the States like this, they would, you would have like 20, 30 comments under each post and we were struggling to get two or three. And I think that was probably something, you know, to do with us as well, but also there's a reticence, a reticence on, um, British people's spot to come forward and get involved in the conversation. So it was really difficult to know who we were talking to. And then we just, we always had a thing that we wanted to do, put on live events because we didn't want to just kind of hide behind our keyboards. It was always kind of a thing of mine that if we were going to do this, we might as well go out and meet these people. So we always, the first thing we started to do was kind of put on Londonist drinks and Londonist events and Londonist blogging events and things like that. So I think a lot, initially we were just talking to, it was an echo chamber of other bloggers. You know, there was people like, 
you know, Annie Mole and Diamond Geezer and all, if you could get him out from his house, uh, all those kind of, that very much London-centric blogging community, and then it just kind of spread from there, I think. Um, with, a, with, a, with pint in hand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember we had a birthday due at some point um, where, you know, over, you know, over 100 people turned up and we were just, we were surprised that that happened. So it just kind of, it grew very, very organically. And I think uh, we never defined an editorial voice either. We never sat down and sketched it out. We were never that considered. Um, it just kind of, you know, gelled into something. But then it was only me writing it for the first, I don't know, until, I guess until Gothamist got involved. It was only, I mean, Ewan used to do kind of daft animations of Ken Livingston on a, on a dirt bike and things like that. And, um, <laughs> and I would do the writing so but um so how how many articles were you putting out uh it went from about three or four a day up to about eight a day and i was and I had a full time job wow yeah, it started to get stretched <laughs> very quickly, so this was still essentially an amateur operation that, that you it were was working. always an amateur operation when i was yeah i always had a full time job when I was doing it hmm. yeah so i was I was working at a publishing company um and i was I was there for about six years, so I was getting very bored, and I was kind of doing it automatically almost so i had quite a bit of spare brain i guess bandwidth to try and do something else which is why um i, I kind of yeah was doing this on the side i guess it might not be for, for some listeners it might not be the most interesting conversational avenue to take but for, for some they might be wondering um about those technical issues how did you uh, manage to cope with this uh, potentially crippling overload of uh, people logging onto the site and uh, and chewing through the material there uh, we just paid more money. I mean, Possible, it was, it? yeah, we just paid a bit more. I think, yeah, it was all out of my own pocket as well in those days. Um, but it wasn't that bad. I mean, we got, we was just, you know, whichever hosting plan, it was fine. But then I remember we were on True Type. Remember that? Oh, v- vaguely, yes. I'm not sure I ever knew what it was. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you for making me feel very old. <laughs> we have like old blogging software conversations now. Um, but yes, and I think with that, that was okay. And then we, I think we shifted it over to WordPress at some point in order to kind of, get a better um, kind of handle on it. But the real tricky bit was when we got more than me writing for it, you know, when we got other people involved, when it got to that point where we had to have other people writing for it, otherwise I just wouldn't sleep. Then it became a kind of editorial, uh, I guess, logistical mission. How, how, how did that work? Because that, that sounds a little like a, a step into a whole new realm if you're starting to bring people on board. Was, yeah, and I think, um, I think when, I think, I think basically when we became Londonists, we put the call out and said, look, we want people to write for this. And this initial um, like handful of people came forward, um, who, uh, including Matt, uh, Matt Brown, who edits it, a good edit up until very recently, Londonist, and um, Mike Sizemore and Ken Yao and um, Alex Dawson and uh, Will Wiles. Um, and so we had this kind of handful of uh, writers and basically what we did is just set up a message board and it was became uh, kind of the editorial room of London. This was on the message board, um, and and that just worked extremely well. I think because we were able to kind of have conversations all pretty much in real time, while you know, um, and people submit the stuff um, via you know via WordPress or you know, TrueType or whatever it was at that time. So it just became, and we just kind of edited on the fly. Um, so we just kind of had this kind of virtual newsroom in the background that we mm-hmm. everything through, and it was. And it worked really well because we just kind of felt our way towards a bit of a, a system, you know, of uh, pitching stories to each other and going, yeah, that'll work, that'll do, someone writes it, goes up, 
So I know it's a, you know, and then, and, that, and then it worked like that. So it kind of just grew quite organically, which I think is the best way of it happening, to be honest. So you try and put too many processes in places that they never work. So we're, we're, when are we? About 2004, 5, 6, somewhere around there? Something like that, yeah. Yeah. That, that rings uh, about, am, am I right in thinking that Twitter came about in 2007, or have I just made that up? I think 2006, because I think, so if it was 2004 when London had started, yeah, I went to, because um, I basically went to Yahoo. I got a job at Yahoo, editing Yahoo News, and it was at Yahoo that someone said, oh, you should look at this Twitter thing, the kids are going to love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, and that was in 2006, yeah. So, so you were really at uh, a point that I, I think a lot of people would imagine a world before Twitter is uh, non-existent, or at least in black and white, and, and you were established before that point. That makes me feel old as well. We're, we're all feeling ancient. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what, exactly. what, what about this uh, Gothamist uh, hookup then? How did that work? Um, well, Jake just, I mean, because I was obviously... The early version of, of the Big Smoker, which had it was called the Big Smoker, obviously because the Big Smoker, but obviously we had Battersea Power Station as our logo, huh. um, and it was I was just uh, obviously the kind of style of the of the site, the, the writing was modelled quite a bit on what Gothamists were doing, and I don't know if we'd had contact with Jake before, Jake Dobkin, um, but once I think once we won the Guardian Award, we there was a bit of email back and forth and then it was I think October of that year or something he just emailed me and said look would you like to become part of the first overseas ist as it were because I think Parisist came shortly afterwards but that that did never work partly because it's a terrible name um, and it might have been a Berlinist at some point but um, they had maybe five or six of the American sites up and running and they wanted a uh, kind of European one, and London was the first port of call, and I think it was build one from scratch, or just go over to these, you know, cheeky sods in in London who'd done it when, anyway. Um, is this kind of a franchise operation, then? Is that, is that what we're talking about? Gothamist. Mm. Uh, yeah, it was. Originally, I think they, they basically outsourced the editorial, and then they would give us enough uh, cash to kind of cover the... Uh, we could actually pay contributors for the first time, a very small amount. Hmm. So we had to make the decision whether, you know, obviously we had to change the look and feel of the site. And that was when we first got a real idea that people actually really liked the site because we said, right, we're going to change it and change the name and everyone was up in arms. You know, when you change anything online, people go crazy. Hmm. But that's when we realized we kind of had a dedicated following of people <laughs> and audience. Um, but they got over it very quickly, I think. And it was just, we were kind of in a network of blogs then, which was quite interesting, really. Um but, um, yeah, and it kind of, it, when I left, it, I guess it kind of made it easier because it, there was a structure around it, you know, um, that was there that I was going to leave it kind of floating around. So there's, there's two departures possibly to talk about there. The links with Gothamist are at least not particularly apparent now if they exist at all. Were they, mm-hmm. uh, were they, was there a separation at some point? There was. You have to ask Matt about that. I mean, that was after I left, I think. I mean, I know that, um, they, because I think obviously the the thing about being part of the Gothamist network was the was you know getting to make some money and have some advertising and things like that. But I think then being able to sell advertising from New York for a site based in London is logistically very tricky. Hmm. So I think that relationship they kind of um, they were like, well, why don't we just bring it all in house? So I think they've worked that out somehow and they just licensed the name now. But that was all after I left. So take all that with a pinch of salt. Um, and what, uh, what about your departure? When when did that come about? Um, 
Um, probably 2006, 2007, something like that. Because I say I went to work for Yahoo, and at that, like I said, I was working at a publishing company and was able to do Londonist on the side, as it were. Um, but when I went to Yahoo, I was kind of, it was a much more, it was a bigger job. Um, they, they were using up that spare bit of brain power. They were, and more, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, um, I was either kind of half heartedly kind of be one of these extra large people who just dips their nose every now and again or leave it completely. Um, so I just, I just kind of made a clean break really and handed over the reins to Matt and Mike at that time. Um, because it was just, you know, I didn't want to be like, one of those people just hangs around looking forlorn or something. So uh, it was a lot. It was a lot easier just to let someone else kind of take over. Um, and obviously, Matt's done a sterling job of it as it's still going. That probably wouldn't have happened if I'd stuck around. So, um, but yeah, it was just it was just easier to kind of uh, go and uh, concentrate on other things and let, and let Matt kind of look after it. So uh, I suppose in in closing, a couple of uh, where we are now type questions, and and I suppose it sounds as though you've no vested interest, so I can ask you these. Uh, Mm -hmm. First of all, if there were one thing that you might suggest doing differently if you were back on the, if you had your hands back on the reins, is there uh, any aspect of the direction that's been taken that you would have uh, steered differently? Um, Matt's asked me this before, actually, over coffee. It's, it's, it's a hard one because I think going back to editorial voice, the bigger you get, the harder it is to retain that editorial voice, the bigger the audience you get and the bigger the number, larger the number of writers you have. It's harder to maintain a clear one tone. Um, obviously, you know, if, to kind of have that consistency is very, and have that, I guess, uh, the ability to have an opinion a real, very strong, you know, kind of opinionated edge to your voice. Um, the, so I think it would be, I've always kind of wondered who's going to come along and in kind of what format and, um, like blow Londonist out of the war. Do you know what I mean? Who the, yeah. like the, the 20 year olds going to come along and hmm. have something which is going to be, and I think that, I guess the, like, I mean, I talked about this when we did the, ten, the little video for the 10 year anniversary thing at Londonist offices the other week. Like when we did, uh, the coverage of the 7-7 bombings. And it was a very much a kind of, the end of that was very much a very subjective, you know, kind of impression tone to it, which I don't think they could do today on London, which is this now. And that's not a bad thing, it's just a different thing. You know, it's just a different audience, it's a different setup. Um, and I remember, you know, taking posts down about when the Pope visited, because Mike wrote something about his... Um, his opinions of the Pope when the Pope visited London, which, you know, and that was the kind of, it was, we skated a bit close to it sometimes. We had like people who wrote for the site complaining about the site in those days. So, um, um, but you know, the enemy tried to sue us at one point because of something we wrote and because we weren't, we didn't have anything to lose. I think that's the point because our audience was smaller and if something went wrong, we could just deal with it and carry on. But obviously I think now with a bigger audience and a bigger team and lots more writers, it's logistically and kind of, I guess, politically harder to do that. Um, which is just, you know, one of the things that happens when you get bigger. So I wouldn't necessarily go and change anything about London now. It's just interesting to see how tone shifts over, over the years. Um, there's a, a moderating effect then that a wider audience has on you, a pressure to find the middle ground. I think so, yeah. Um, I think so. I think there's, um, 
it's and obviously the more writers you get, the harder it is to retain one editorial voice because you're getting more and more people into the mix. Um, and we were always very, I was always quite controlling, I guess, about how London is sounded, you know, because. Um, um, and I think that was, and I think once you get more and more people, it's harder and harder to do that. So you get more of a mix of, and that's a good thing in a certain way, but it's also, you know, I think people relate to a, to a, an editorial tone. Sometimes that's why people come back to specific writers and titles and, and sites and things like that. So, mm. um, it's, and it, but that, that gets diluted over time as you get bigger. And like you say, if you're just trying to kind of talk to more people, um, and attract more people, um, then it, that gets that gets tougher as well. But you're also, it, you know, there are good things about that as well. So it's um, it balances each other out, I suppose. So my final question, and thanks mm-hmm. by the way for taking time out of your holiday to uh, to talk <laughs> to us. Uh, when you look at the site now, what do you? Is it, and this is a deliberately open question. Uh, when you look at the site now, what do you feel about it? What do I feel about it? Um, I guess proud. Is that too cheesy? <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Um, yeah, I do. I, I mean, it, it was very strange. I went in to see Matt and uh, Londonist Towers um, for the first time in a long time uh, a few months ago earlier this year, and there were six people sat around at a bank of desks typing away, and Matt was like, so this is the team, and I was like, Really? And like, these people get paid to sit here and do Londonist, do you know what I mean? And it's like, that is mind blowing. If you'd have gone back to my, uh, 20 something year old self and gone, these people, you know, in, in 10 years time, there's going to be a, a room for the people getting paid to do this. I would have just laughed in your face. Um, because it was just me at my desk kind of, um, sneaking, you know, uh, a posting whenever I could, you know, after my lunch. And so I think to, to have it grown to something which is, you know, and then it's bizarrely, it's the thing that still, if I mention it to people, um, that I worked on it, they go, Oh, really? You, you know, you did Londonist. And I've worked on a lot of stuff in the last 10 years. And the, the Londonist is the, the thing that everybody, um, will you know, kind of perk up on and ask me about. So, and I think, and that's, you know, a credit to the people who've kind of taken and run with it since I left, uh, more than anything, I think. But yeah, I'm very proud that it's still there and it still represents a city, you know, I'm very proud of what we did in the few years that I was there, but um, the fact that it's still going and it doesn't seem to be going anywhere soon um, is 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 amazing. And it just reminds me of all the people I met. Well, I mean, that was the kind of for me the the thing that the greatest thing that I got out of it was just um, getting to meet some incredible people. You know, the people that wrote for the site in those days, so I still know them all now, mm. uh, and they're all doing you know insanely. Um, creative and successful things now and just being able to kind of meet with them and see what they're doing now is, is, is fantastic so that's a good thing for me but yeah it's just it's, it's going strong but someone will come out come along and blow them out the water eventually it's going to be interesting to see who that is <laughs> <laughs> that's a provocative night to answer um you it's early in the morning there in new york what's your plans for today um we are going to go and walk down the high line um very new york thing to do the old railway line that's now kind of just one big long garden there is a Jeff Koons exhibition on at the Whitney Museum. The Whitney. So I'm going to, might go and see that. Depends on the weather. And I'm going to go to Shake Shack and have a massive burger at some point. But that's it as far as plans are concerned. <laughs> no, no envy from me whatsoever. No, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> What's your plans for the rest of the day? I'm painting a wall. Oh, nice. <laughs> the, the Shake Shack and the Highline look pretty good from where I'm standing. <laughs> 
<laughs> Rob Hinchcliffe, thanks so much for taking the time. No worries. Thank you very much. We'll be back in just a moment talking about the more recent history of Londonist and about its future after this message from our sponsor. Do you buy monthly travel cards for your commute? You could save money and avoid renewal hassle with Commuter Club, a new way to access the big discounts offered by annual travel cards with all the flexibility of paying monthly. Find out how and sign up at www.commuterclub.co.uk forward slash Londonist. Well, every workplace has its watering hole, and we are in the, well, I think might be the Londonist watering hole, or at least one of them. I think Londonist probably is famous, as Rob Hinchcliffe was saying, for having uh, quite a few and for enjoying a drink as it uh, goes about its business. I'm at the Princess of Shoreditch. It's on the corner of Willow Street and Pool Street, and with me, Matt Brown, former editor of Londonist, James Drury, new, present editor of Londonist. Hi, you both. Hello. And you've got hearty pints in front of us here, and um, the first question surely is how much of the office's business is conducted here rather than in the office a reasonable amount well we're down here maybe once twice a week um, we do try and get about a bit and try various places and we don't do it all in the pub i mean a lot of the business is done in the office sometimes in coffee shops that model of working is something that interests me because obviously londonist has grown from being something that was more or less a, a, a sort of a bedroom project and it's grown into something that's much more uh, office-based professional a team uh, working in, in what would uh, what anybody would recognize as a standard office set up in a fashionable bit of town. James, you've arrived uh, relatively recently. How long have you been editing for now? Uh, I've been the editor since August, so just a couple of months now, um, and firmly got my feet under the table. How steep a learning curve has this been? It's been reasonably steep, but um, I, it's, it's not certainly without... It's not, it's not too much out of my comfort zone. Um, I've been a journalist for 18 years, mostly in arts and music journalism, so this is... Um, um, uh, in terms of the content, this is very much my comfort zone. Um, it's the thing that I'm very passionate about, and the things that I love. It's a new way of working from different systems and so on, um, being at Londonist. And developing new systems and taking things to the, the next level. One thing that editing the site for seven, eight years, Matt, will have given you is the ability to talk fluently about being the editor of Londonist on uh, various interviews and radio shows and so forth. Uh, James, as you're coming new to having to talk about that, of course you're used to talking about previous jobs, but having stepped up in terms of profile and having to present not only yourself but the site, what are the feelings about that? How do you go with that? Well, Matt's shoes are fairly large and it was somewhat daunting to be filling them. But um, I'm no stranger to the to journalism. I've edited mag- magazines and websites in the past. I've run the European Festival Awards and UK Festival Awards as a business as well. Um, so from a processes point of view, I'm pretty comfortable with it. I'm quite confident to talking about people and talking to people. This is the this is the city that I love, the city that I'm most passionate about. This is my favourite city in the world. I'm not just saying that. Um, I actually believe that. I don't think I'd be able to do that job without actually believing that. And so for me it just gives me a wonderful chance to stand up here and tell everybody that I know and everybody that will care to listen how fantastic London is as a city and also some of the little problems that it has as well but it doesn't mean that I don't love it and I I want to do exactly what the site does for London I want to nudge under your professional skin and I want to know about secret James Drury what will we not know about you that might surprise us if I'm not if I'm not writing about London or or 
tinkering around with Londonist. I'm out and about looking at London, um, whether that is um, from the arts and, and, and theatre perspective to um, museums um, or reading about it. My particular passions are, are museums and non-fiction books about London. Uh, I'm a bit of a geek around that, um, but I have a very strong music history um, and have spent a very long time uh, writing about and listening to music and playing music uh, in London. So, I was about to ask you, you mentioned the non-fiction books, I was about to ask you uh, what you'd recommend, but I realised that in your position, uh, in your position you must run into the problem of not really being able to favour one thing over another and you're going to offend 99 people if you commend one. That level of diplomacy must be exhausting. I quite enjoy it because I think that everyone should have a fair hearing to a certain extent. I will tell you off this podcast what my favourite book about London is. (laughs) Very secret London. I've got a particular geeky love for the city farms. I lived just five minutes away from Stepney City Farm uh, for many years um, and it sparked a real love of mine for trying to visit them all. I think I've been to most of them now, except Mudshoot, bizarrely, which is not even that far away from me. But uh, Well, it goes, it goes beyond a, an interest, doesn't it? You, I believe, got married and immediately rushed to a city farm. Yes, that's true. I um, got married at St Dunstan's Church in Stepney, which is just over the road from Stepney City Farm. So, of course, my new new wife and I hopped across the road and went to see the animals. Um, And the wonderful people there were very kind and let us get into the pens with the animals too. So we've got some rather unusual wedding photos, I've got to admit. We should go back in time a little bit, though, and something I've learnt today that I didn't know, we've we've sort of been talking about this show as being a Three Doctors special, and I've just discovered there are more Doctors besides, so I think we need to complete our chronology of Londonist editorship before we go a step further. It is a long and tangled tale, and it's founded, as we've already heard, in about 2004 as the big smoker when Rob Hinchcliffe and Ewan Mitchell founded the site and soon turned it into the Londonist we know and love today. But there have been many editors since then. I was the next editor from about 2006 alongside uh, a guy called Mike Sizemore. Uh, Sizemore was his nickname. His real name is uh, Mike Atherton, so maybe it's to avoid being confused with a cricketer. And since then, we've also had Lindsay Clark, who still works with us today on the business side of things. She was actually the editor as well for a time. And uh, Hazel Choi Wiles, who's uh, editor from about 2007 to 2009. So when you took over, were you coming from a background that readily enabled you to do this sort of work? <laughs> sort of. I was a science journalist or a science editor, so I was in the in the business of playing with words and writing things, uh, but in a very different field. I mean, I, I knew nothing about arts and museums and things like that, only from what I'd encountered as a, a casual visitor. My background very much in the scientific side of things. So we'll bring this up to the present day by perhaps following what you have achieved, Matt, through your tenure there, about eight years and what was the the shape of things when you arrived and how does that differ from as you've handed over to James? Well, I've been astounded, flabbergasted by the way it's grown and evolved over the years. When we first started, it was very much a kind of snarky news site where we'd look at the kind of stories of the day, maybe a political story or a cultural story and just write a short, snappy piece, a newsy piece uh, to entertain and amuse and inform our readers. Over the years, though, we've really diversified and we do all kinds of full-length features now. We talk. We didn't even do listings and, and events back then. It was became very news-orientated. And now we do things also like this wonderful podcast and the videos we produce and the live events we put on. 
and it's grown sideways, upwards, in all directions. It's, it's, it's a very different beast to when I first started writing for it. Now, obviously, this, uh, there, there is the risk doing an interview with a, a former boss and a boss that this could be a gushing interview where I say things like, how wonderful are you? But actually, it strikes me that, to be fair, what you've just described could get unwieldy and unmanageable pretty quickly if you're going in all sorts of different... How did you keep it on track? I mean, did you keep it on track? I think it's great strength, Londonist, is that we've always had wonderful writers who go more than just writing they've all got involved with the organisation so if things were ever getting a bit loose and tatty around the edges there'd be someone on the team who cared enough about that to help shape it again and we have this wonderful um, online system of keeping everybody uh, on the ball and knowing what everyone else is doing and coordinating things Yes that's something that I have to say I find uh, a, a brilliant part of working at Londonist is that I get emails if there's something that isn't quite right and I, I find that absolutely brilliant one of our contributors or um, someone else who's really passionate about the site will email me if there's something wrong or if they see something that isn't quite right and I've got to say that is just such a wonderful thing to have there. I like to think that 99.9% of the time we do get it right um, but it's brilliant that people are so watchful and care so much about it that they are prepared to keep an eye on it all the time and and to tell me how they feel that there should be improvements made. Uh, Listener, I'm about to fluff you, but this is true that I've heard, and I've heard this from a number of Londonist writers, long-term contributors as well, that they feel that the Londonist site naturally seems to draw to it a better class of reader. And I, I, I realise that could come across as sycophancy, but really they've said that. And they've evidenced the comment section in particular. And I know at least one of the people contributing to Londonist, Rachel Holdsworth, has lots of experience moderating message boards. And she sees, frankly, some of the slime of the internet. And her view seems to be that Londonist does not suffer from nearly so much of that sort of thing. To what would you attribute that quality? Well, I think Londonist attracts uh, the, the, the kind of readers that um, really cared deeply about London and are obviously right-thinking and wonderful people. Um, it's interesting that we are able to, to cover topics which people do feel really passionate about and topics which aren't necessarily just safe. It's not just about doing museum previews or, or reviews of art exhibitions. Um, we do cover important topics to Londoners and there is a healthy and engaged debate around them without too much trolling and and general name calling Um, it's it's fairly measured and well thought out and we do as you said go for the kinds of content as well which maybe do have a more intellectual edge i mean frank skinner of all people he's probably our most famous fan he once uh, is quoted in a newspaper as saying we are the thinking person's guide to london and i'd uh, i'd very much echo that i think we do tend to list the sort of things that other outlets might not so perhaps intellectual debates and discussions uh events that might go on in scientific circles as well maybe from my background i've been tuned into what a wonderful city this is for science and that often doesn't get reflected in the the vast arts coverage that other outlets will give sometimes other sectors of london are, are missed out so we've always tried to fill those gaps that um, you perhaps can't tune into elsewhere well, yeah, that's interesting you say that because the arts do readily lend themselves to being covered, don't they? That's, uh, they're, they're populated by people who thrive in a, in a business sense as well as uh, other senses on publicity. They need people to uh, pay attention to what they're doing. And shining a light into other areas of life actually can be a lot more challenging. People have less incentive to talk about what they're doing. What sort of barriers have you seen and overcome and how have you found covering those 
other non-arts areas? I don't know if there are that many barriers. I think if a topic is naturally interesting, um, if I find it interesting, if one of our other writers finds it interesting, chances are in a city of 8 million people there will be sufficient readers who will also find it interesting. So we just don't really encounter those barriers. We tell the story as we think it should be told and the readers come. Well, as with anything in radio, you know, if you talk about dangerous dogs or immigration or one or two other things, you you can guarantee that people are going to call in or or write in. Are there hot topics that you know you're going to get a huge hit count on if you put them on the website? There's a couple of things that we know are absolute guarantee draws for people because um, people are so passionate about um, certain aspects of London. People are particularly keen on on the hidden elements of London, the bits they don't normally get to see in their day-to-day lives. Matt does great series of photographic uh, pieces on the parts of stations that you don't normally get to see or going into other buildings that you don't normally get a chance of. And of course, um, as listeners to the podcast will know, we work closely with uh, Dr Bradley Garrett he's a great friend of Londonist and it's great to unearth those hidden parts of London that we um, we don't normally get to see in our day-to-day lives or maybe more of a hard-hitting news side um, whenever we cover cycling and the, the changes to the infrastructure to, to aid cyclists or perhaps the, the tragedies that have happened in, in that community as well those stories are always very uh, political or, or well engaged with the readers we get lots of comments we get lots of opinions flying around um, anything transport in general in fact I mean um, alternative tube maps on a more whimsical note anyone who's taken a tube map and changed the station names it's been done a hundred times now but it's guaranteed to excite readers and get comments flowing in both positive and negative uh, yeah you mentioned politics how does that work because obviously you can't cover a city without covering politics but how do you uh, make choices around what you're saying and, and whether you're taking sides in an argument whether you're aligning yourself to a particular political viewpoint uh, we generally tend to stay neutral um, in terms of politics. I think we're all right-thinking people and we have intelligent readers. Um, it's up to us to present the facts um, as we see it and allow our readers to make up their own minds. That said, um, if something's obviously daft, we're not afraid to say that either. And it doesn't matter what political persuasion you're from, we're, we're, not, particularly, we're not just going to sit here and say, oh, yes, here it is, it's a great idea. What, what sort of thing do you have in mind when you say that? I uh, couldn't possibly say... Uh, that, that seems slightly at odds with what you were saying. I wonder uh, whether the letter B would feature in any of your thinking. I don't know. Matt, what about you? How have you handled the political side of things? I personally, I don't really strain into politics too much. I mean, I'm very interested in it. I just don't feel qualified to personally cover it. Uh, that said, I mean, I've overseen the sites while we've covered a lot of politics through other writers. And I'd agree with what James says. We just make sure we keep things neutral. But we will occasionally stray either side of neutral as long as it balances on general in general so we might do a kind of comedic piece about boris johnson but then we might do something a week or two later supporting perhaps something that he's he's put into place it's about applying common sense um none of us are believers um and none of us are anti-darwinian or um anything like that and i think you know going with the general scientific consensus um will inform uh, most of our decisions around whether we decide to um present another viewpoint or not 
um, most of the time though I think it's where there is a healthy debate it is usually around something which does have two genuine sides to it two sides which someone has to make their mind up on and I think it's up to us to present those two sides so, so for instance and this is a non-specific example but let's um, or, and not a real example but if you had uh, I don't know some sort of a group of people who had quite a wacky idea about something generally speaking would London S find itself raising an eyebrow as they report it or do you just uh, take it at face value and, and put it out there what, what's, what are the sort of principles there? I like to take as my principle a wonderful pediment that you find on Southwark Street above the Kirkcaldy Testing Museum a wonderful small museum it's uh, endangered I believe at the moment but above their door there's this sign and it says in big granite letters facts not opinions and I think as long as we stick to known facts gathered data and don't go on conjecture and and whimsy and we report the facts only then we're in safe territory 10 years of building London S what have been the big milestones and I I guess we'll take 7-7 as a given I wonder how uh, London S dealt with that event but also what other milestones have there been in London S in terms of what London's been doing well you're right to highlight 7-7 of course it was a a huge horrific day for the whole city and it was very early in our in our evolution It, it was my first week pretty much writing for the site I remember it clearly we were all all the writers on the team we didn't have an office in those days we were an amateur website we were spread all over town and our kind of behind the scenes backroom on, online forum as we call it was a buzz with um, speculation all the all the contributors were chipping in what they knew what they understood the situation to be what they'd witnessed themselves in some cases and we gathered it all together and it was our first time kind of reporting a big news story like that and uh, a very memorable and horrific time but then of course it was also wrapped in with the Olympic announcement so we had these two big stories one day after another and that for me was the first big day for Londonist as a site the first time we ever pulled together as a team on something larger than ourselves I'd say after that, I mean, there have been many milestones since then. The Olympics was a huge narrative for the next five or six years. And um, when that went out of the way in 2012, we did have some fears that, what do we do now? We spent the past seven years covering the Olympics. Uh, what's next for Londonist? But in a city this size, there's always new stuff happening. There's always new big things happening. I mean, Crossrail is another big story that we're gradually telling as that unfolds. And there's still four more years until that's uh, open to the public. So that will continue to be a story for some time to come. Another huge mile point for us was about 2010 when we made the big decision to change the site from being a purely hobby amateur site to trying to turn it into a business where we built the traffic up to such a degree that it became feasible that the advertising and other possible revenue streams could support it as a professional website. And we had the challenge of turning it from this hobbyist blog, basically, into a professional website without alienating our readers by suddenly having all this commercial content appearing on the site. As we get closer then in the chronology of the site to the handover between you, and I don't know if I'm going to get anywhere with this question, um, could we get a cigarette paper or more between you in your views, in your ways of approaching the role? On which issues do you find yourself differing? I don't know if we differ too much on issues. I think we both have the, a fairly analytical, rational viewpoint. I think James comes from a sort of harder journalistic background than I do, so perhaps, perhaps, it's for him to to decide, we'll go down a more uh, hardcore newsy route uh, as part of our content than I could ever deliver personally. 
Um, but in terms of our views on the city, its development, I think we're fairly well aligned. Matt is considerably better at science than I am. <laughs> considerably better at science than I am. What, so what about, James, you, you've taken over with London is in the strong state that it's in. And, of course, it's a challenge to build on something that's already going great guns. What have been the first areas that you've looked at and thought that there's room for not just progression, but change of whatever sort? I think Londonist, you're very right, was in a fantastic position when I joined. Um, I'm very fortunate that it is um, it is going great guns and going like the clappers. Um, um, my challenge is to maintain that level of growth, um, ensure it does keep growing. What we've done recently is we've introduced some more uh, video footage online and that's something which is, is also doing really well based off the back of the really incredible success of the Secrets of the Underground series which uh, Jeff Marshall did um, which has just gone over a, a cumulative 1 million views on YouTube which is fantastic yep so, so that was one element that we're doing um, I'm also wanting to reach out to, to more contributors to broaden out our, our range of content yeah, it's really exciting times. I'm just excited to be seeing it continue to grow. We've just gone over 350,000 Facebook likes. We're doing fantastically well on Twitter. We've pushed up well over half a million followers on social media. So it's grown massively well, and um, I'm excited to be a part of that. And the listener and the reader, it might be interesting to know how they fit into the picture, both in terms of the city, the country, and globally. Who is reading this stuff? Have you any idea of, of where these eyes and ears are coming from? Well, believe it or not, uh, most of our readers, and presumably our listeners, are London-based. It's, I think it's about 70% London. The UK makes up the next largest demographic, uh, and then the USA, France, and Germany after that. Our readers are absolutely fantastic and a really key part of Londonist. Um, what I find one, the most wonderful thing about Londonist is that our readers, uh, we're not a, a site, a website where we write information for other people to consume. It's a whole community of people pulling together information which we aggregate and improve on and it's a dialogue between all of our readers not it's not just from us out to the people that use the site it's it's all our readers and users and listeners and and viewers and everything it's this just wonderful fantastic community of people i mean i'd like to i mean give a specific example of that where we've had our readers not only inform the content but produce a really useful resource we've got this thing called the v2 rocket map which um it, Originally, it was just a kind of slightly geeky historical feature that we put together some years ago where we mapped all of these World War II rocket impact sites in London. And it had such a huge response. We had so many people who were there who were 70, 80, 90 years old who witnessed these attacks appearing in the comments below that article and giving their eyewitness testimonies which then added to this map we found new places we didn't know about that had been hit in the war added them to the map with their eyewitness testimonies and in fact in two circumstances now we've reunited old family members and friends who'd completely lost touch with each other 50 years later found each other again in the comments to this article uh, it's, it's things like that that are so rewarding and it makes running the site such a privilege sometimes and we've also got, uh, after, after the community who are based in London live here already, I think there are a lot of people who are potentially planning on visiting London who use the website to get a feel for the way that locals see their city. Most of our content is aimed at Londoners. We don't do very much to the tourist and visitor market, 
but I think the tourist and visitor market actually appreciate that because they're reading things that Londoners themselves are saying about the city and Londoners that are aimed at Londoners. Yes, um, when I travel outside of London, I wish that there were more sites like Londoners, to be honest, because it really is a it is really is a source of information for people that live in the city, rather than the fairly um, humdrum presentations that you get from from some tourist offices. I want to find when I go to a different city, I want to see the parts that you don't go to with every other tourist that has gone to that city that every single cruise liner has just pulled up at and goes to the same spots. And that's what I think Londonist is fantastic as a resource for tourists. Um, because you really get to get under the skin of the city and uncover those elements and those hidden bits, the really, really good bits of London, I think. How far might you be tempted to go with that? Would you start knocking on the door of some of those uh, sites that have something to say about hotels or trips or packages or all of that kind of stuff, or do you stay with what's uh, visible from street level? Um, I think we stick with where we are at the moment. But we've, we've got a very successful um, formula at the moment. I don't really see any particular reason for us to go pushing out into certainly hotel-type discussions. It's, it's not, our core readership is Londoners, and, and that's who we're writing for. I can't really avoid this. This is the job interview sort of question. This is the 10th anniversary, another 10 years. Where do you imagine Londonist might be? Where would you like it to be? I'd like to see Londonist having fantastic, continue to have fantastic growth. Ideally, I'd like us to be the place where Londoners come to as their first source of, of news and entertainment for, for London. One thing we've always done well, I think, is adapting very quickly to new technologies and new things that can change the publishing environment. So, for example, when Twitter came along, 2006, 2007, we'd already been going two or three years by then. We already had our processes in place. But then this new technology comes along. No one's quite sure how it's going to change things. But we made sure we were on it early and learned the best ways to use it early. And I think that's what we'll continue to do. We will have strategies. We've got a business plan. But... Part of that, crucially, is always going to be to turn on a sixpence and change and adapt as new things enter our purview. Well, we have to come to a close uh, just about there, only because of time. But there's one final question, which is, is there a message from you for Rob Hedgecliffe over in New York? Thank you so much, Rob, because my whole life changed when I started writing for Londonist and it's every fibre of my being now is to write and explore London and giving me the opportunity to write for the site in the first place and then making me the editor after you left has changed my life in such a positive way Hi Rob, I'd like to echo what Matt said but just say that Rob you're in the uh, wrong city right now, you should be back in London <laughs> um, it's been fantastic and here's to another successful uh, 10 years James Drury Matt Brown thanks very much thanks. thank you and that's all for this decade my thanks for this week to Rob Hinchcliffe Matt Brown and James Drury thanks too to Ruth Hargreaves and Bernie Barkley theme and incidental music by Songs from the Howling Sea I'm Anne Quentin Wolfe
Do you ever feel like money is just flying out of your account and you have no idea where it's going? Well, I know it's all of those subscriptions. I use Rocket Money to help me find out what subscriptions I'm actually spending money on, and I had them cancel the ones I didn't want anymore. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash pod24. That's rocketmoney.com slash pod24. rocketmoney.com slash pod24.